นโมทัสสะภะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสังคำถามเราไม่รู้ว่าเราทำอะไรอยู่แล้วเราไม่รู้ว่าเราทำอะไรอยู่แล้วเราไม่รู้ว่าเราทำอะไรอยู่แล้วเราไม่รู้ว่าเราทำ
feeling of discomfort, then it's absolutely right to start carefully inquiring what's going on here. The first part of the question, referring to this aspect of our evening chanting that we, we do over and over again, over and over again we've said this hundreds, thousands of times. And the person asking the question says it makes them feel good to some degree. What's going on there? To whom or by what is this acknowledgement of fault being accepted. Well, I would suggest that the reason that we feel good when we acknowledge our faults is because it gives us a little bit of space around being that self, being that personality that has aspirations but keeps failing. We all have aspirations. That's why we're engaged in this practice. We have confidence that liberation is possible and that there is a training to be done. And we sincerely commit ourselves to that training. And yet we don't always live up to our aspirations and our commitments. And, and we could just be thinking, oh, well, I'll try harder next time. But something happens when we acknowledge our faults. So the same in, in a, with a... An acquaintance, if we maybe upset somebody, we you know, lose our restraint and say something hurtful and, and there's a discomfort in the relationship. Just saying sorry can make a huge difference. Now, we might just think, oh, well, I know I made a mistake. I'll try harder next time. And they make mistakes as well, so there's no need for me to say sorry. It does make a difference if we say sorry, and, and what's going on there? And this acknowledgement of fault, something happens. Well, I, I would suggest that what happens is that we relativize the sense of self. If we're totally absorbed in the sense of self, in the ego, in the personality, in the sense of me, if we're totally identified as that, if we have no perspective on it, if we have no space around it at all, it's really painful, really, really painful to be totally absorbed by our personality. When we're born, we don't have a personality. When we're born, we don't have an individuated sense of self. It's just undifferentiated awareness or consciousness. And, and this little being dwells in awe at existence. No sense of somebody having an experience. And, as the years go by, this differentiated sense of self gets constellated by about the age of seven. There's somebody there who you can have a conversation with. Yet who knows that there is this sense of self? Who is it who's able to reflect on this exercise of may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted? Who is knowing this? So it's an interesting question, who is receiving it? Who is listening to our acknowledgement of fault? Or what is listening to our acknowledgement of fault? It's equally interesting, and I would suggest that we ask, who is asking? We don't necessarily 
have a great perspective on this and we get around as if there is this solid substantial me here that's doing these practices and living this life and getting on with things but who is this me really? So this me wasn't always there, the sense of self, the self structure wasn't always there, it evolves over a period of years and then we identify as it we become it. We become a personality and then we develop our personality. And it's not all fun by any means. You can, this sense of self gets configured and then it feels hurt and feels rejected and then it's afraid of being rejected again and then it learns how to deny the fears of rejection and, and then there's sadness and then it learns how to deny the feelings of sadness. And as the years go by this contracted sense of self gets more and more dense and becomes quite a burden. And if we don't have a teaching which helps us to relativize the sense of self, that can be really painful, really difficult. So I'm suggesting that when we acknowledge our faults in this ritual way, what we're doing is we're projecting our ability to receive ourselves, accept ourselves, forgive ourselves. I've spoken before about projection, how useful it is to inquire until we come to our own understanding of what's really going on. Is projection always helpful? Is it always harmful? I would say that there is positive projection and there's negative projection. Positive projection conduces to growth, to development, to strength, to well-being. Negative projection leads to weakness and undermines our confidence. And this this is an act of, I would suggest, positive projection. Another example of positive projection is where, again, using the example of a child growing up, where in the beginning the child doesn't know their ability, doesn't know the extent of their ability, doesn't have a sense of boundaries. And so there's this thing happens whereby the child projects their ability onto their parents and expects the parents to look after them. And they need the parents to look after them. And if the parents are doing their job good enough, then little by little they mirror back to the child their ability. Encourage the child to feel strong, to feel able, to feel competent, mm. to feel skilled, to feel good, to feel capable. And if that mirroring doesn't happen well enough, then sadly the <clears throat> individual doesn't develop adequately and it might go on for many years and they may never really grow up. They may be an adult and they're busy still projecting their ability out onto others, being dependent on others, but not in a wholesome, skillful, useful way, in an undermining way, and, and they stay undeveloped. So that's where it's a negative projection. It's no longer serving their increased competence. So in the early years, the child projects their 
ability on the parents and the parents reflect or mirror it back onto them little by little, the being grows. Something similar happens in the world of psychotherapy where somebody is suffering from a lack of ability, uh, not knowing how to handle themselves, something, some stage of development wasn't navigated adequately enough and, and they don't know how to sort it out and so they go to see a therapist and if the therapist is skillful and they accept the projection of the client for a while and then gradually little by little reflect it back and the client grows and well-being and confidence and therapy has done its job. Positive projection, functional projection. It can become dysfunctional or negative projection when the therapist is not doing their job properly or, or the client is not willing to grow and just keep insisting on projecting the ability onto the therapist or the therapist doesn't, maybe the therapist doesn't want their client to leave and, and their client gets overcooked in therapy and that's not what's supposed to happen but it can happen. So that's where positive projection can develop into negative projection. So there is functional projection that helps us. Likewise in the monastic training situation where the first few years of training uh, young men in the case of monks, young women in the case of nuns take up this training and are not used to all these structures and the rules and, and the principles that, on which these rules and structures are, are constructed. So in the beginning they have what's called a mentor for the first five years as a monk, it's called the Navak training years, you have a mentor and somebody who you depend, you have a teacher. So when you part of the ordination ceremony and part of the relationship and living in a community with a teacher is asking to go for dependence. This is not a negative neurotic dependence. This is a po positive functional dependence. Asking to go for dependence. Nitsaya is the word. Asking for nitsaya from the teacher is setting up a functional relationship of dependence so that then you can benefit from what the teacher already knows. It can also, likewise, not work out as it's intended and junior monk or junior nun can become overly dependent on the teacher and project too much or the teacher doesn't know what's going on and doesn't know how to steward that process of projection and feed the energy back and so the young monk or young nun grows in strength and confidence and that's where it becomes negative projection. So... That little bit of theory hopefully is helpful in understanding what goes on when we're using this device of asking that the Buddha accept our acknowledgement of fault, or asking the Dhamma accept our acknowledgement of fault. We yet don't know how to fully accept ourselves, receive ourselves, fully receive ourselves and let go of ourselves. So we have this functional projection going on. We imagine, we have an imagined Buddha. Uh, the true Buddha is selfless, just knowing awareness. Uh, that's, that's the refuge. I go for refuge to the Buddha. I'm not going for refuge to, merely to a human being who was born and died in India 2,600 and something years ago. 
I'm not going for refuge to this bronze Buddha image here on the shrine. I'm going for refuge to the potential for awakening. And we have a concept about that, which we call the Buddha. And our relationship with that concept can be positive, can be functional, if we understand it accurately, if we have enough mindfulness and understanding. We can bow down in front of the Buddha image and we have this idea in our mind, may the Buddha accept my acknowledgement of fault so that in the future I'll be more restrained with regards to the Buddha. So in so doing, we're setting up this dynamic we don't have the opportunity to go and see the Buddha. However, we can have a concept of the Buddha and we can project onto that in a positive, functional way. If we are doing it with respect and we have, as I said, sufficient mindfulness and understanding, then something can shift. And as the asker of this question, that something beautiful seems to happen. And I would suggest that it's we're somewhat relieved from being identified as this conditioned self, as this personality. Yes, there is a sense of me, but is this me as ultimate as I think it is? Sadly, a lot of people, particularly these days, do feel that their sense of self is ultimate. It's the centre of the universe. Sometimes it's the only thing that matters. And that's a great pity. That's a disaster. And a source of huge amount of suffering for the individual and for others. So it's no surprising at all that saying these words generates a feeling of well-being because it, it relaxes, it can, it has the potential to relax our hold on the self-structure. Another way of possibly reflecting on why there could be painful feelings arising. The question alludes to it with this conditioned perception of, from Christianity of being a sinner. And the way of understanding that is that just because we reject the concept of I'm a sinner doesn't mean to say that it goes away. That perception of I am damaged goods or, or I am bad especially if early on in life we reject it and lock it away in unawareness. It's not gone, it's just, it's just that. It's just like bad feeling locked in our system. It seems to me that for a lot of Western Buddhists there's this resistance to using ritual, including this sort of ritual that we're discussing this evening, using devotional practices, because for this very reason, as soon as they engage them, bad feeling comes up. Well, I would say that actually that's good. That's what's supposed to happen. That bad feeling has not like just come out of nowhere. That's come out of, that's come out of our own unawareness and is now ready to be received. Now that's, that's actually good news. And the device, this mental device we're using, it's, it's worked. It's brought that which is unwholesome out of unawareness into awareness and now it's ready to be received. If we don't have that understanding, then we somehow maybe think that the ritual is the cause of the problem. The ritual is not the cause of the problem. 
The problem came from our being dishonest about the fact that we felt bad. We felt bad because we were told we were bad, and rather than feeling it and letting go of it, which would have been ideal, we felt it and then locked it away. So we have this accumulation of unreceived, unacknowledged badness. And it may not have even been our own generated badness, as I was speaking recently. There's also that possibility of assimilated badness or assimilated dukkha, where if you're in the company of other people who are carrying that kind of perception, if there's that kind of culture, that people feel guilty and bad about themselves and about what they've done, but they're not able to reach a level of remorse that means they can let go of it and get on with their life, learn the lesson and get on with their life, they lock it away. And it can come out in, in the language that's used and the, the way the body moves and the lack of kindness, uh, lack of sensitivity, and the more accumulated dukkha there is, the less aliveness there is. So if you grow up in such an environment, and perhaps I think the word toxic is not too dramatic, if you grow up in such a toxic environment, it can assimilate dukkha. So our own generated dukkha and assimilated dukkha, it's stored away and it's painful, that's what dukkha is, it's painful. And then we do a ritual like this, and pop, there it is. I feel bad. Great. If we are properly prepared, if we have sufficient mindfulness, not just some mental skills, a well-developed, embodied quality of mindfulness, here and now, and not tainted with compulsive judging, that quality of receptivity is what's going to help. Now, if we're not prepared, then yes, we end up blaming the ritual or blaming the tradition and maybe even say uh, unskillful things about the tradition and the rituals and dismiss them, when in fact they can be very, very helpful. Rituals and symbols, they work to go beyond the rational mind, the linear logical thinking mind only goes so far. And a lot of the pain that obstructs our lives is locked in unawareness. And so the act of bowing, the act of chanting, the act of making ritual offerings to the shrine, the act of reciting such words as, my, may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted, can be very powerful in bringing that old, unreceived pain to the surface so as it can then be received and let go of. So as I've already mentioned, this consideration of the issue of reciting such words in Pali or in English, may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted. It, as I was suggesting a minute ago, it, it 
invites us to look into what we really what we really understand by self. As I was saying, we, there isn't an individuated sense of self when we're born. It takes years to develop. And how stable is it anyway? How real, how substantial is the sense of self? Most people, it seems, are getting around most of the time assuming that their sense of self is ultimate. You see the behaviour of me, my way, I want, you know, the way sometimes people present themselves and displaying their credentials and the force behind it, demanding attention, and, or maybe the, the way that customer might speak to a shop assistant when they don't get the attention that they feel they're entitled to. That sense of self-importance betrays an inner state of being identified as the self, as the personality, as the ego. And how many people are really aware of how dangerous that condition is? It seems to me that most people are getting around, they don't have a, they don't have a vaguest idea that their sense of self is conditioned. Nobody's question. It seems like it's like, the, it's like the most important question and nobody's asking it. The most important question, what is the self? Who am I, really? And almost nobody's asking this question. I mean, this seems to me a very, very vulnerable state. It used to be, for a very long period of time, probably for most of the history of humanity up until about a hundred years ago, or at least the beginning of the last century, up until about the beginning of the last century, something in this country, something like 90% of the population used to go to church once a week, or were regular churchgoers anyway. And what happens in church is that you get inducted using rituals and symbols into an appreciation of virtue. I'm not saying that all of the induction that you're subjected to was, was wise or beneficial, but a lot of it was. A lot of the, the integrity, the forgiveness, the generosity, the kindness, uh, modesty, humility, all of these virtues were regularly, like pretty well every week for a large percentage of the population, not just this country but pretty much around the world, before communism and scientism and materialism and secularism became so dominant, that was what happened for human beings. And the sense of self, the personality, was shaped powerfully shaped by those influences. People were imbued with virtues. It was, there was an understanding that he was a man of his word or she was a woman of her word. Somebody with integrity who was spoken about as a sense of praise or somebody is frugal or somebody is modest or somebody is humble. And in the world that we live in these days, this is very rarely spoken about, very 
really heard. So that influence, that powerful influence, instilling virtues that have been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of probably thousands of years, suddenly disappeared in just a few decades. Well, isn't that going to have a significant effect on the self-structure? I think for sure. I think never before in all of human history, I would say, has such a rapid change in the self-structure taken place. Now, it's not just down to the de deterioration or the demise of the influence of religion. It's also very much influenced by the increased power that comes from technology. And since again, about a hundred years ago, first the Industrial Revolution gave humanity much more power, much more ability to influence the world that they lived in, influence each other. And then more recently, in the last few decades, the power that comes, the huge amount of power that comes to the individuals through technology. Now technology is neutral, it's not good or bad. It's, however, it does have the consequence of amplifying everything. When I think of technology, that's the word that comes to my mind, amplification. It just amplifies everything. It can amplify the good things. It's great that we can do a search on Google and find some useful Dhamma teachings and access to resources that even just a few years ago weren't so readily available. That's great. That's amazing. All these electronic publications that we can download and read and uh, Dhamma talks we can listen to. That's amazing and significant. However, the opposite is also true. There's so much that's unwholesome, so much that's unskillful. And so now one person has at their fingertips huge potential for creating a great deal of harm. So if we're talking about the self-structure, we're talking about the personality, the personality, the self, over the last few decades, lost the protection that comes with virtue, virtues that have been instilled from childhood, and a deep appreciation of the importance of integrity, of honesty, of kindness, of forgiveness, of generosity, that deep appreciation which protected the self-structure from self-inflation, from narcissism disappeared, the protection disappeared and so all these hundreds of thousands of people now don't have that protection and what they do have is access to this massive amount of power and what a combination that is so to me it's no surprise at all that we have this collective identity crisis humanity is currently suffering from a collective identities crisis. There isn't a, a felt identity that is secure. There's a lot of insecurity and uncertainty mm -hmm. and confusion and desperately 
trying to find meaning desperately, trying to make sense of an increasingly chaotic, threatening world. And maybe you've heard people express the despair and the confusion. How do we get into this state? The powerful leaders that we have in the world at the moment and the divisive influence that they have on society. How do we get into this state? Well, these are questions that we really ought to be asking ourselves, inquiring into ourselves, developing the the mindfulness, developing the, the sense of conscious composure, developing the interest in the reality of dukkha. Not just reacting when dukkha arises and sending our attention outwards, looking for something that we, we can blame or, or some, some way of distracting ourselves, but educating our attention because we're interested in getting the message. We want to learn the lesson that we have to learn. Uh, again, as I've said so many times, uh, quoting the Buddha, it's not knowing two things that we stay stuck in this unfortunate condition. Not knowing suffering, not knowing the cause of suffering, not knowing dukkha, not knowing the cause of dukkha. This is the message. This is what we need to get interested in. And and when it comes to the question of how do we get into this state, well, it's it's the denial of dukkha. It's a straightforward answer, actually. What do we do about it? Well, that's something else. And thank you very much this evening for your attention. Handamayang Dhamma Kathaya Sadhu Karang Tadama Seh